And now, please welcome the undisputed coolest kids on campus, the king and queen of every homecoming court, the mommy and daddy of all the vampires we know, love, and are victimized by today. Put your hands together for Count Dracula and the lovely Mercala, Countess Karnstein of Styria. The Count first appeared in 1897 in Bram Stoker's Dracula, a novel that has been in print pretty much continuously since its first publication. They made into a movie that saved Universal Studios from the Depression, spawned academic symposiums and a comic book that ran for seven years in the 70s, inspired a Philip Glass album, been the name of an Allied operation in Burma during World War II, and been adapted into five operas, four ballets, and at least 19 plays. Phew! That's a pretty fancy legacy for a book that contains this much baby-eating. <laughs> Mercala, Countess Karnstein of Styria, made her bow 26 years earlier in Sheridan Le Fanu's 1871 novella, Carmilla, because Carmilla is an anagram of Mercala, who also sometimes uses the name Milarca. But, you know, Dracula also called himself Count Deville, and later in other books used the aliases Dr. Acula, Count Alucard, and Cargilla, so, hmm... Pobody's Nerfic, Dracula spawned a series of strong, sexualized, powerful vampire dudes, and Carmilla, and we're gonna call her Carmilla because I refuse to say Mercala or Malarca again, gave birth to the sexy lesbian vampire ladies we know today. Together, they are the Tigress and the Euphrates of vampires, the peanut butter and the jelly, the leather and the lace, the Ben and the Jerry's, the Adam and the Eve, the Rose and the Thorn, the S and the M, the Smokey and the Bandit, the Simon and the Garfunkel, the Yin and the Yang, the Hawk and the Dove, the Captain and Tennille, the Dom and the Jerry, the Rock and the Roll, the Beyonce and the Jay-Z, the Luke and the Leia, the Lip and the Bomb, the Quiet and the Riot, the Princess and the Bride, the Law and the Order, the Drunk and the Disorderly, the Bat and the Man, the Water and the Gate, the MK and the Ultra, the Under and the Wear, the Business in the Front and the Party in the Back, the Truck and the Nuts, the Domestic and the Beer. So put away your notebooks and your calculators. Turn off your phones. Make sure you have a sharpened number two pencil ready and waiting because today we're going to learn all about Dracula and Carmilla in English language arts. Scary haunted homeschool. <laughs> Sit back, Bram Stoker, and let's begin with Carmilla, because Bram Stoker was just a beardy jock and recent graduate of Trinity College in Dublin when Sheridan Le Fanu, another graduate of Trinity College in Dublin and also a resident of Dublin, serialized Carmilla in the short-lived literary journal Dark Blue back in December 1871. The world had gotten along just fine without sexy lady vampires until Samuel Taylor Coleridge introduced them in his poem Christabel. Like Carmilla, Christabel was a seductive supernatural woman found in the woods by a girl being raised by her single dad. Both Carmilla and Christabel had sketchy backgrounds, heaving bosoms, and bewitching stares that they used to seduce their hostesses into sexy sapphic slumber parties. Coleridge never finished Christabel, maybe because Wordsworth told him it was a stupid poem, or maybe because he was already in training to become an Olympic-level opium addict. But without any other famous poets around to neg him, or opium, 80 years later, La Fanu definitely delivered on Carmilla. The short version of Carmilla. Laura is 18 and stuck in a castle in Styria with her retired dad. Boring! Even worse, her summer visit from her BFF Bertha gets cancelled because Bertha has caught a terrible case of being dead. Suddenly... <laughs> A traffic accident. The carriage contains Carmilla and her mom. Carmilla is injured, but her mom needs to deliver a TED Talk or something else equally urgent, and literally in the time it takes for them to turn the carriage right side up, mom has ditched Carmilla with Laura and her dad and takes off for parts unknown, leaving nothing behind but a carriage-shaped puff of smoke like someone out of a Warner Brothers cartoon. Soon, Carmilla is canoodling with Laura, whispering things in her ear with her hot, wet breath like, Our flesh will become one. You are afraid to die? Yes. 
everyone is. But to die as lovers may, girls are caterpillars when they live in the world, to be finely butterflies when the summer comes. But in the meantime, they are grubs and larvae. Don't you see? Each with their peculiar propensities, necessities, and structures. I'm not even sure what she's talking about exactly, but soon things are getting pretty heavenly creatures up in here. She used to place her pretty arms about my neck, draw me to her, and laying her cheek to mine, murmur with her lips near my ear, Dearest, your little heart is wounded. Think me not cruel because I obey the irresistible law of my strength and weakness. If your dear heart is wounded, my wild heart bleeds into yours. In the rapture of my enormous humiliation, I live in your warm life, and you shall die, die, sweetly die into mine. Carmilla's got game, and soon she's visiting Laura in the middle of the night after these big-time chat-ups, biting her in the breastuses and lapping up her hot blood. And it quickly becomes clear that these gals aren't just good friends. And then things turn kinkier when it turns out that Laura uncovers a repressed memory that Carmilla visited and sucked on her back when she was only six years old. So technically, Carmilla is a pedo-lespire. And it gets even more kinkier when we discover that Laura is related to the Karnsteins on her mother's side, making Carmilla an incest pedo lespire. Like dating Anthony Weiner, it just keeps getting worse and worse. Because also, you know how Bertha didn't visit because of totally being dead and stuff? Well, it turns out Carmilla deaded her. And she pulled the same carriage accident scam with her mom on Bertha and her dad. And then she got all canoodly with Bertha too, and probably used the exact same line about girls and caterpillars and grubs and butterflies, and probably sucked on her her heaving bosom, and Laura is just crushed. So crushed that she basically disappears from the book so that a bunch of dudes we don't really care about can hunt down Carmilla, who's napping in her blood-filled coffin in Styria, which is sort of near Hungary, where they stake her and cut off her head. But the book saves itself from sort of total dude disaster when it returns to let Laura have the last word. The following spring, my father took me on a tour through Italy. We remained away for more than a year. It was long before the terror of recent events subsided, and to this hour, the image of Carmilla returns to memory with ambiguous alternations. Sometimes, the playful, languid, beautiful girl. Sometimes, the wreathing fiend I saw in the ruined chapel. And often, from a reverie I've started, fancying I heard the light step of Carmilla at the drawing room door. Carmilla is psychological in a way Dracula simply is not. Dracula is a boy's adventure story. Carmilla is my brilliant friend set in Styria instead of Naples and with more lesbian sex and decapitations. Carmilla and her mother are sociopathic grifters, sadistic undead serial killers who pull elaborate cons allowing them to play emotionally and psychologically with their food, sometimes even falling in love with it, even as they slowly, seductively begin to feed. Count Dracula doesn't have mixed motivations or any game whatsoever. He's all force. But Carmilla is a seductress with the whole, come here, come here, come here, go away, go away, go away thing going on. And Carmilla ends with a serious loose end. We know who Carmilla is and what happened to her, but who is her mother? And where is she? Laura awaits the light step of Carmilla at the drawing room door eternally, while her mother still roams the poorly paved roads of Europe, searching for one more sucker, inserting her cuckoo's charge into nest after nest. The undead, the undying the unending, the unstoppable, the eternally returning. Vampires are the loose ends that haunt us all. And let's not just blame Carmilla. She repulses Laura, but also attracts her. Laura knows she's dangerous, but she can't stay away. Vampires exploit our desire to be desired. We all want wanting. How many marriages starve to death because couples stop touching each other? How many relationships wither when desire dies? How many lonely people craving touch get dressed up every night and go out looking for Mr. Goodbar, dragging themselves to the gym every morning, denying themselves dessert, trying to see that new outfit through another person's eyes, believing, praying, hoping that there's someone out there for them who wants their body? We all want to be craved, that overwhelming hunger another person has for our flesh that feels exciting and scary and intoxicating and slightly out of control. Carmilla offers a seduction that Dracula just isn't capable of pulling off. It would take 26 years for Dracula to join Carmilla on the dance floor, so until then it's a long ladies' night out of other female vampires dancing around their handbags to ABBA. 
Arthur Conan Doyle published John Barrington Cowles, about a woman whose dad got involved in devil worship in India, and now she gets engaged to one fine fellow after another, absorbs their vitality, and leaves them jittering nervous wrecks before moving on to the next victim. Mary Elizabeth Braddon wrote Good Lady Duquesne, about a rich old woman who pays extravagant wages for healthy young maids that she psychically sucks dry. Years before What We Do in the Shadows introduced modern viewers to energy vampires, they ran rampant in the Victorian era. As the doctor narrating the hilariously cold-blooded Beautiful Vampire by Arabella Keneally concludes, There are a score of such vampires in this town, vampires in lesser degree. When A talks with me for ten minutes, I feel ten years older. It takes me an hour to bring my nerve power up to par again. People call him a bore, but in reality he is a rapacious egotist, hungrily absorbing the life force of any one with whom he comes into relation. In other words, a human vampire. And then there's Harry. Harriet Brandt lands at a hotel table in a Belgian seaside resort where the other guests notice her gobbling up her food like someone's going to take it away from her at any minute. She's not beautiful, but she is striking, and she just got out of an Ursuline convent in Jamaica, and OMG, she wants to see and do and touch and taste absolutely everything, and talk to everybody she possibly can't all the time, and she just won't stop talking and talking and talking and walking, and let's listen to the band over here, and let's eat sweets over there, and let's go to the park, let's go to the beach, let's go shopping, let's buy a hat, let's buy gloves, and hold new outfits, and I got something for your baby, and a toy for your son, and a new hat for your husband, and oh my God, try this fan, I got you, isn't it adorable? Everyone around her just gets more and more tired, tired, and tired, until they die. Harriet is the star of Blood of the Vampire by Florence Marriott, published in 1897, the same year as Bram Stoker's Dracula. And Harriet is an energy vampire. Can I hold your baby? Thank you so much. He's so sweet. Look at his little lips. Who's got little lips? Who's got little lips? And his tiny ears and toes. And I took him to the beach and on a walk into the park. And oh, well, too bad. Now he's dead. And isn't that the sweetest little girl? Can I take her to see the parade? And we'll have such a good time watching the soldiers march and hearing the band says, oopsie, she's dead too. Harriet Brandt is the manic pixie dream girl of doom. Her curse is eventually explained by a doctor who knows the details of her case from back in Jamaica, because it turns out that Harriet's problem is her mother was a mulatto. That's right. This woman is not purebred Anglo-Saxon, so of course she's not quite human and brings death to every dining room table. But Harriet is a victim too. A victim of maternal impression. Harriet's grandmother was bitten by a vampire bat when she was pregnant with Harriet's mother, and those vampiric tendencies have traveled through her blood over two generations to make Harriet so extremely exhausting. Maternal impression is bunk science that became wildly popular in the 17th century, and essentially it claimed that a pregnant woman should only be exposed to very, very nice things because her fetus would take on the characteristics of her environment. And so if she was exposed to bad things, her fetus would wind up growing into a baby that was totally ugly and repulsive. I mean, who would believe this garbage, right? I mean, thinking that the elephant man's mother got scared by elephants when she was pregnant and so gave birth to a deformed son. Or that if you were frightened by a beggar who grabbed your foot when you were pregnant, your child would be born with a club foot. Or you can listen to lots and lots of Mozart while you're pregnant and your child will be born smarter and more likely to write piano sonatas. I mean, thank God we've done away with all that superstitious Victorian crapola and no one believes junk like that anymore. In France, they believed in science, and that meant these stories were reported and believed much less after 1860, but they continued to be covered in British medical journals until the 1890s. In American matrimonial guides, this theory of maternal impression kept showing up all the way into the 1930s. Maternal impression often had to do with birthmarks and birth defects, but a lot of times it had to do with animals. In 1870, O.S. Fowler wrote in Creative and Sexual Science, the story of a pregnant mother who visited a menagerie and became interested in its animals. Some five months afterwards, she gave birth to a monster, some parts of which resembled one wild beast and other parts of other animals. Or, as the doctor says about Harriet in Blood of the Vampire, ho ho ho, when the cat is black, the kitten is black too. 
It's the law of nature. And in Blood of the Vampire, Harriet winds up containing a veritable zoo's worth of animal metaphors. She's a beautiful wild creature, but also, at any moment like the domesticated lion or tiger, her nature might assert itself and become furious, wild, and intractable. She may seem harmless enough at present, so does the tiger cub as it suckles its dam. She eats like a cormorant, and also she eats like a pig. When she's angry, she bites a pillow and shakes it as a terrier worries a rat. But she attaches herself to one woman like a snake, and she moves as a snake might glide to its lair. But wait, in childhood she was nicknamed a puma cub, and she's also a panther, a lynx, a sly cat, and a tigress. She's a lot of things. It reminds me of our Saturday school subject, the Lamia, that infamous forerunner of the vampire. But by the end of the 19th century, no one was saying that a woman eating pastries at a Belgian seaside resort had the literal top part of a woman but the lower half of a snake, the legs of a goat, and the arms of a bear to indicate she wasn't human. They just did it with hurtful metaphors. <coughs> By the end of the 19th century, it wasn't just exhausting Jamaican vampire girls who couldn't shut up that were getting hit with the hurtful metaphors. It was all women because they just wouldn't stay in their place. The new woman had burst onto the scene and she was exhausting everyone because she wanted to smoke and ride bicycles and play lawn tennis and <gasps> vote. Warning, adult content. If you are listening to this podcast with small children, you may want to ask them to leave the room for this next segment or merely take a stapler and seal their ears shut because we will now be talking about women voting. In Blood of the Vampire, the helpful doctor explains that Harriet Brandt is not just totally exhausting, but she is also a sadist who, as a child on her father's Jamaican plantation, loved to watch the overseer whip his slaves and even took on the duty of flogging the slave children herself. She is violent. She loves blood. And she's not human. She's part animal. Just like those gosh darn new women demanding the bicycles and being able to eat in restaurants and the vote. Elizabeth Lynn Linton could have been writing about vampires in her article against the new woman, The Wild Woman as Social Insurgents, in 1891, saying that feminists had devolved, falling down the evolutionary ladder, and they had a tendency to trail about in tiger skins. She also said that these new women had a hunger for blood, and that the idea of a woman having a job like a man being, say, a butcher, was morally abhorrent. We confess that the image of a butchering woman nursing her infant child with hands red with the blood of an ox she has just pole-axed, or of a lamb whose throat she has this instant slit, is one of unmitigated horror and moral incongruity. Eliza Lynn Linton goes on to say that suffragists and their supporters were determined to bring about social and national disasters advocating disorder, disobedience, irreverence, and whatever tells against the dignity and integrity of our empire. Harriet definitely fits this nightmare image of the bloody, exhausting new woman leaving death and disorder in her wake as she murders people with her endlessly flapping mouth. But she's also kind of awesome. She's no self-sacrificing giving tree of a woman martyring herself on motherhood, Harriet is a taker. Marriage and domestic manuals at the time were full of no's for women. No, you should not go to the zoo when you're pregnant. No, you should not talk too much at the table. No, you should not eat so quickly. No, you should not ride a bicycle or smoke in public or vote or be a butcher or do anything at all. But Harriet Brandt doesn't take no for an answer. She keeps going and going and going until Everyone around her is dead. Blood of the Vampire was a sensation novel from Florence Marriott who wrote them by the pound. Books like Crown of Shame, Scarlet Sin, Spiders of Society, How They Loved Him, Why Did She Love Him, and The Folly of Allison. These books came slathered in scandal, sin, seduction, murder, insanity, and sex, 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 sex. But as a reaction to all that sensationalism in the late 19th century, literature returned to romance. Like Dracula. There had been sensation novels in the 1860s like those by Florence Marriott, Wilkie Collins' Woman in White, Mrs. Gray's Passages in the Life of a Fast Young Lady, and Mary Braddon's blockbuster 
Lady Audley's secret. But they started seeming like melodramatic balderdash to intellectual smarty pants in the 1870s. So that decade and the 1880s became the land of high realism, with writers like Henry James turning out his fascinating novels like The Americans and The Europeans and The Bostonians. George Eliot made Middlemarch. Emile Zola wrote Germinal. These books prioritize character over plot, scrapping simplistic storytelling in favor of rubbing readers' faces in real life, man. As one critic wrote, they wanted to introduce moral middle-class readers to the kind of persons whom moral middle-class readers had no desire to be introduced. Prostitutes, criminals, beggars, and other unappealing types, mostly poor. People missed plots. They wanted stories. They needed heroes. And so suddenly in the 1890s, they appeared. A new wave of romantic literature. Anthony Hope's The Prisoner of Zenda. King Solomon's Minds by H. Ryder Haggard. And H.G. Wells's Invisible Man and War of the Worlds. Sherlock Holmes solves sinister mysteries, a shipwrecked sailor washed up on the sands of the island of Dr. Moreau, and Long John Silver was given the black spot. And then, in the midst of all this romance, came Dracula. Bram Stoker says he wrote Dracula after eating too much dressed crab at supper and getting indigestion-inspired nightmares. But something else in Stoker's backstory had a greater influence on Dracula than indigestion. His career as a theatrical manager for Henry Irving, one of the great scenery-chewing, subtlety-eschewing, pardon me while I pick these splinters of the set from between my teeth, blood-and-thunder actors to ever set his silk-slippered foot upon the stage, to ever trod the heavenly boards of that temple of the muse Melpomene, whose bold, tragic verse falls from the lips like drops of molten gold before sprouting wings of poetry and flying heavenwards on winds formed from the song sung by Silken Seraphim. Vampires had always been creatures of the stage. Bloodsuckers had first appeared budding on the branch in Samuel Taylor Coleridge's 1797 poem Christabel, but they came into full bloom in 1819, the product of the most famous slumber party of all time. June, Switzerland, on the shores of Lake Geneva. It's been raining. It's been raining for two months non-stop. Last year's eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia killed 80,000 people and failed the planet in a shroud of ash. It will be cold and dark for three years, killing crops. Food riots will break out across Europe. Already there's been rioting in Switzerland over bread shortages. Mobs stalk the streets carrying banners that threaten bread or blood. 65,000 people will die of a typhus epidemic brought on by malnutrition. Brown snow suffocates Hungary, stained by Indonesian ash. The rain comes down in sheets. The cold winds howl. Birds roost at noon, thinking it's night. 1816 will be known forever as the year without a summer. Lord Byron is 27 years old, and like Miss Favell Lee Mortimer in episode one, he has definite opinions on Switzerland, calling it a cursed, selfish, swinish country. But he needs somewhere to stay because he's on the run from England, hounded by rumors of an ancestral affair with his half-sister. So he rents Villa Diodati on the shores of Lake Geneva. With him is his 20-year-old doctor, John Polidari, whom Byron basically brings along as a portable whipping post, constantly mocking him, nicknaming him the childish Dr. Polidali. In Switzerland, they strike up a friendship with the poet Percy Biss Shelley, then 23, and his 18-year-old wife, Mary Shelley, who've both just eloped, leaving behind Percy's wife back in England, who he's inconveniently still married to. Mary is pregnant with their son. They've been led to Switzerland by Mary's stepsister, who's with them, Claire Claremont, who's stalking Lord Byron because she's pregnant with his daughter. He's made it very clear for his part that he wants nothing to do with her. These are not happy people. Mary and Percy rent a place on the other side of a shared vineyard with Villa Diodati, and every day they get together in its dark rooms, trapped indoors by the relentless rain and violent gales that lash the shores of the lake. One month later, Byron memorialized that summer in his poem, Darkness. 
The bright sun was extinguished and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in moonless air. Morn came and went and came and brought no day, and men forgot their passions in the dread of this their desolation, and all hearts were chilled into a selfish prayer for light. At night, this crew of bummers gather in the cold and dark and read aloud from Phantasmagoriana, a collection of German ghost stories. And one night, Byron reads Coleridge's Christabel, sending drama queen Percy running, screaming from the room, hallucinating that Mary has exposed her breast to him, and instead of nipples, they had human eyes. On June 15th, Byron proclaims that they should all write ghost stories. But these are serious poetry people who felt contempt for the so-called shutter novels. And the slumber party superstars, Percy Shelley and Lord Byron, abandoned their stories in short order. Ghost stories are stupid. Every morning is a joke. Someone asks Mary if she started writing her ghost story, and every morning she's humiliated to answer no. But Polidori has begun to write something he didn't show the others, and on the night of the 20th, Mary Shelley has a dream. The witching hour had gone by before we retired to rest. When I placed my head on my pillow, I did not sleep, nor could I be said to think. My imagination, unbidden, possessed, and guided me, gifting the successive images that arose in my mind with a vividness far beyond the usual bounds of reverie. I saw with shut eyes but acute mental vision. I saw the pale student of the unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life and stir with with an uneasy half-vital motion. The next morning, she began to write, too. John Polidori and Mary Shelley were the odd ones out at Villa Diodati. Mary was 18 and pregnant, considered a lightweight. Whenever Polidori opened his mouth, everyone rolled their eyes and giggled. But Mary adored the stammering, socially awkward Polidori, calling him her brother, and he, in turn, taught her Italian. In their isolation, the two outcasts found friendship, and on this trip, they would produce the foundations of modern horror. John Polidori's The Vampire and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And for 100 years, no one believed their work belonged to them. For decades, critics have thrown shade at Mary Shelley, saying Frankenstein only succeeded because it was ghostwritten by her husband, a lie even repeated later in a collection of her own stories. To this day, bullying academic scholars take the evidence of basic copy editing on her manuscript, written in her husband's hand, something any writer would do for another, as proof positive that Mary was little more than Shelley's sock puppet, despite the fact that the story came undeniably torn from her own dreams. It was the same with Polidori when the vampire became a hit, because everyone assumed Lord Byron had ghosted it. This was mostly because Polidori never wanted the vampire printed, but accidentally left the manuscript behind... <laughs> where a third party found it and published it under Byron's name. Making matters more muddled, Polidori had named his vampire Lord Ruthven, the name of an asshole character in a recent novel published about three years before by Lady Caroline Lamb, who had had an affair with Lord Byron and hated him with all the burning passion of a thousand molten sons after he had made fun of her suicide attempt when he broke off their affair. The two would remain mortal enemies for the rest of their lives. Byron was billed as the author of the vampire about this evil Lord Ruthven who drains the life and sucks the blood of everyone he meets, especially women. Lord Byron wrote of this controversy, If the book is clever, it would be base to deprive the real writer, whoever he may be, of his honors. And if stupid, I desire the responsibility of nobody's dullness but my own. I have besides a personal dislike to vampires and little acquaintance I have with them by no means induce me to divulge their secrets. Polidori died in August 1821, not as a suicide, which is the regularly repeated lie, but after falling ill following his supper one night. Only 25 years old, he'd sustained a traumatic brain injury in a fall from a carriage two years previously, which caused him to suffer violent mood swings. He had been depressed recently because he'd published what he viewed as his life's work. The Fall of Angels, an epic poem about the founding of the world in the vein of John Milton's Paradise Lost, and no one cared. It had earned only one dismissive review, and the only consolation was that he'd published it anonymously. On the morning of August 24th, John Polidori simply didn't wake up. At the time he died, London had been burning with talk for 15 days of the new stage sensation, the British adaptation of a French hit called The Vampire, or Bride of the Isles. Everyone knew it was an unauthorized ripoff of Polidori's novel, The Vampire. Did anyone read that? I think I did. Didn't Byron write it? Poor Polidori. Luckless until the end. 
The Vampire or Bride of the Isles was a huge hit and kicked off a wave in 1820 of British supernatural dramas on the stage, ghost stories and stories of madmen selling their soul. It also got produced in America by P.T. Barnum and inspired Dion Buchicolt to write his 1851 play, The Vampire, in which the titular bloodsucker's victims portrayed in portraits come to life to warn the heroine of the dangers of this bloodsucking man. It wasn't very good. Buchicolt also starred in the play, playing the role of this Welsh vampire with a thick Irish accent. Queen Victoria herself saw the play and adored it so much that she went back to see it again a week later, at which point she pronounced it very trashy. A few years before, in 1845, the other big vampire sensation and a major influence on Dracula appeared in print in 109 weekly parts, which were eventually collected into a 220-chapter book. Varney the Vampire. Varney is a rattling, claptrap, penny dreadful, featuring the adventures of Sir Francis Varney, a vampire with tusk-like teeth who keeps sneaking through windows to suck the blood of fair virgins only to get shot and fall back out the window again. This happens to him a lot. The author of Arnie the Vampire was paid by the word, leading to exchanges such as the following. Have you ever heard in all your travelings of vampires? Of what? I ask again, have you ever heard anything of the vampires? I hear you, but I cannot believe you. Say once more. Have you known anything of the creatures called vampires? And so on. For... 445 pages. But Varney came before Carmilla, and he's the first Eastern European vampire in literature, the first vampire to leave puncture wounds on his victims' necks, the first vampire to creep in women's windows and suck their blood while they lie in bed in a state of dishabille, and he's the first romantic vampire, one who broods and moans over his eternal condition and finally winds up committing suicide by throwing himself into Mount Vesuvius. <laughs> Books like Varney had long fallen out of style with their cheap melodrama and their repetitions by the time of the sensation novels of the 1860s and the realist fiction of the 1870s and 1880s, but it seemed to be connected with the romantic revival of the 1890s, which also spawned Dracula. Critics referred to these romances in the 1890s as degenerate books for degenerate times. By the 1890s, everyone was a degenerate, especially artists. 1895 saw the publication in English of Max Nordau's 566-page German book, Degeneration. And it became Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point of its day, the book everyone pretended they'd read when really they just read articles about it and liked to use its catchphrases. Nordau was the most popular popularizer of a queasy fear drawn out by Darwin when he blurred the line between man and animal with his theory of evolution. It led people to sort of sit around the dinner table thinking, if man evolved from animals, couldn't he devolve back into an animal too if he wasn't careful? I mean, it sounds reasonable, but it's kind of the 19th century equivalent of saying 5G causes coronavirus. However, the idea went viral. Nordau's thesis was that genius and criminality were both evolutionary throwbacks, or rather, de-evolutionary throwbacks, the result of people devolving into more primitive states. As he helpfully put it, Degenerates are not always criminals, prostitutes, anarchists, and pronounced lunatics. Sometimes they are authors and artists. In his book, he could only come up with six great men in history who weren't degenerates. Galileo, Leonardo da Vinci, Voltaire, Machiavelli, Michelangelo, and Darwin. He used measurement of skulls and cranial fluid as well as degrees of facial angles to bolster his work. And, of course, if the measuring tape is crooked, you build a crooked house. To discover if you were degenerate, Nordau had many other indicators. Are you left-handed? Degenerate. Do you use a lot of fancy words over and over again? Degenerate. Are you tall? Degenerate. In fact, the only great men who were tall he could think of were Petrarch, Schiller, Charlemagne, Alexander Dumas, Voltaire, Peter the Great, and George Washington. Bram Stoker loved Nordau's theory, and he had Van Helsing comment on it at great length in Dracula. But more than his idea of individual degeneracy, Nordau struck gold in the viral meme mimes with his idea of cultural degeneracy. As he wrote about the end of the 19th century, The disposition of the times is curiously confused, a compound of feverish restlessness and blunted discouragement, a fearful presage and hangdog renunciation. The prevalent feeling of the times is that of imminent extinction. The old northern faith contained the fearsome doctrine of the twilight of the gods. In our days, there have arisen in more highly developed mind vague qualms of a 
twilight of the nations in which all suns and all stars are gradually waning and mankind with all its institutions and creations is perishing in the midst of a dying world. Even though the British Empire expanded enormously at the end of the 19th century, there was an idea in the hearts of its citizens that all of these foreign nations to which they were taking over were contaminating their colonizer with their foreign concepts and alien ways. And with rumblings of war in South Africa and an almost 20-year economic depression afoot, there was this sense that the high point of the Victorian era had passed, and signs of decadence were visible for anyone who cared to seek them out especially in literature, most especially in the newest literary manifestation of the British subconscious, horror fiction. Just as the Western genre is a natural byproduct of America, horror is a naturally occurring export of England, probably because it rains all the time and every small village burns someone alive in a wicker man to celebrate the start of summer each year. But still, horror is uniquely British. And British horror seems to have erupted like an enormous pimple on the end of the 19th century's nose, with the rapid-fire publication of Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1886, Oscar Wilde's Portrait of Dorian Gray in 1891, Dracula in 1897, and that old realistic sentence stringer Henry James's Turn of the Screw in 1898. Edvard Munch's painting The Vampire premiered on the continent in 1895, scandalizing viewers with its depiction of a woman biting a man's neck. And in 1897, Philip Byrne Jones's painting of a woman in a nightdress straddling an unconscious man in bed caused a scandal at its unveiling. Its title? The Vampire. It became such a sensation that the painting inspired a poem by Rudyard Kipling and a ballet known as The Vampire Dance. 1897 was also the year that the new theatrical sensation opened in Gay Paris, The Grand Gourneau, a charming little playhouse which premiered plays like Le Laboratory des Hallucinations, in which a doctor performs surgery on his wife's lover's brain, turning him into a lobotomized zombie, and the lover then somehow performs surgery on the doctor's brain with a wood chisel. In another play, a woman's face is pressed to a hot stove, then pulled away, tearing off her cheek in the process. So, you know, it was basically Euro Disney, before Mickey Mouse ever went to France. Stoker's degenerate Dracula fit in perfectly with the fallen times in which it was published. Dracula is an astonishing book. Stoker's boss, Sir Henry Irving, was one of the great hams of all times. His shows were huge special effects extravaganzas, sometimes with hundreds of extras on stage, and Dracula is a stage extravaganza. A theatrical melodrama, a blood and thunder show, turned up to 11. There are chases, sexy ladies, murders, fights, train trips, blood vows, blood drinking, baby eating, lots and lots of baby eating. A surprising amount of baby eating, actually. It's the greatest show you ever saw in the blood and thunder style of the late 19th century stage. Only... There was no stage. It could leap from ancient Eastern European castles to a cozy English drawing room at the flip of a page. Stoker had written lots of books before, and he'd write plenty of books after, and none of them are very good. Which kind of makes you wonder if he hired a ghostwriter for Dracula. H.P. Lovecraft says he actually knows a woman who almost got the gig, but Stoker balked because her fee was too high. Then again, H.P. Lovecraft is a pill. However, Stoker did dedicate the book to his good friend Hall Kane, one of the best-selling novelists of the day, just enjoying the first flush of his fame around the time Dracula got written, so lots of people have speculated that Kane may have brushed up the text. Either way, Stoker's other books and stories were almost exclusively romantic dramas about manly men saving beautiful women from certain doom. But in Dracula, the most manly man is Dracula, and he doesn't save women, he sucks their blood. And the other manly men are really terrible at stopping him. But here's a secret about Dracula. It makes zero sense. <laughs>
Take chapter 7, the Demeter chapter. The Demeter is the Russian ship out of Varna that brings Count Dracula, or rather his coffins, to England. But when it arrives at the port of Whitby in the UK, the ship is piloted by a dead man, lashed to the wheel, and the entire crew are missing. It's amazing. It's dramatic. Then the Count takes the form of a wolf and leaps to shore and vanishes into the hills, while the newspapers run the hidden log of the Captain of the Seas, which reveals that his crew was picked off one by one while the ship was surrounded by an impenetrable fog. This is what's known in literary theory as a hot mess. Dracula's goal is to get to England with as little fuss as possible so he can start feeding on people and take over the country. So, to accomplish that end, he A. Surrounds the ship with an impenetrable fog that follows him wherever they sail. B. Murders the crew one by one. C. Wrecks the ship with a storm he summons at the last minute and runs away into the hills disguised as a wolf in a burst of press coverage. Is he an idiot? When he leaves England and goes back to Transylvania by ship, he gets all the way there without murdering anyone. Why all this counterproductive drama? Because it's dramatic. Bram Stoker is a graduate of the Henry Irving School of Melodrama, and when your lead character makes an entrance, he makes an entrance! The entire book of Dracula is like this. The motivations are mixed, the action makes zero sense, but it's such an exciting pell-mell rush to the finish that it follows every single rule of drama that it picks you up and sweeps you along in its befuddling wake. And all this befuddlement and mixed motivations helps set the table for one of the most fun games in literary theory that everyone loves to play. Welcome back to What Does Dracula Mean? An exciting new game show where each week our contestants offer an organizing principle for a book that just doesn't add up. Because as we like to say here at WDDM or Whatum, give us seven English literature PhDs and we'll give you 17 conflicting theories on the meaning of Dracula. Now, please welcome contestant number one. Arthur Fink teaches at Bennington College, and he enjoys the works of Samuel Beckett, smoking clove cigarettes, and sleeping with his students. Arthur, are you ready to play? What does Dracula mean? Dracula is a pure demonstration of the primal horde theory. In primal horde theory, if you're unfamiliar, Dracula is the old patriarch, the alpha male, if you will, who has hoarded all the women, and the younger males must rise up and kill him to take their turn with the women, as if they're a troop of baboons. It's a very basic anthropological... I'm sorry, Arthur. You're a pretentious wanker. Now, let's meet Bobby Klostermonger, a professor of literary theory at Barnard College, where she enjoys underwater basket weaving, beat poetry, and nothingness. Bobby, what does Dracula mean? Well, there's no doubt about it, is there? How can you read Dracula as anything but a political work? After all, Dracula doesn't go to England because he wants white people's blood to survive. Stoker is very clear on that point. His actual urge is reproduction, but not sexual reproduction, political reproduction. From his home in Transylvania, he plots with his lawyers to buy land in England so that he can take over the country. Dracula is clearly not just developing a system of feed but a whole new demographic. Uh, will they vote? Will they drive out the humans? Dracula is the foreign invader, contaminating the blood of English men and women, especially the women, and turning them into his own subjects, loyal to him alone and not to the queen or the country or their home political... Thanks, Bobby, but now it's time for the lightning round. In Dracula, Chapter 23, Harker, Van Helsing, and company are destroying Dracula's lairs around London, and they corner him at his house in Piccadilly. Jonathan Harker slashes at Dracula with his knife, it slices open Dracula's wallet, and makes a wide gap whence a bundle of banknotes and a stream of gold fell out. As Dracula leaps out the window and runs away, the vampire hunters trace his retreat by the sound of gold coins hitting the pavement. What does this passage mean? Franco Moretti? This is clearly an example of Dracula's position within 
in monopoly capitalism. Even Count Dracula's title is a reminder of the importance of counting in a capitalist system and accounting, recounting, comparing accounts. Dracula is an agent of unregulated capitalism who is impelled towards continuous unchecked growth. Judith Halberstadt. Well, this passage actually symbolizes Dracula's hoarding of money. Dracula resembles the Jew of anti-Semitic discourse in several ways, especially in his relation to money and gold and also his parasitism as according to Stoker. This image of the vampire bleeding gold connects not only to Dracula's abuses of capital, his avarice with money, and his excessive sexuality, but it also identifies Dracula within the racial chain of signification that links vampirism to anti-Semitic representations of Jewishness. Martin Willis Oh, well, you see, as Harker slices the money from Dracula's coat, he symbolically enacts the true nature of his relationship with the Count. Harker's perceived superiority over the foreign and his immoral exploitation of its wealth return in this scene, transformed into a violent colonial confrontation where the British male, with a fierce and sudden cut, <laughs> expropriates Transylvanian wealth without recourse to the civilized veneer of economic exchange. Fascinating stuff, and I'm here to tell you, you're all advancing to our showcase showdown where a new washer-dryer could be yours. Now let's hear a recap from last week's returning champ, C.F. Bentley, and his stalwart adherence to a Freudian analysis. Well, clearly, the relationship between Dracula and his three brides symbolizes the violation of the incest taboo. Adultery is symbolized by several men giving blood in a single transfusion to one woman, Lucy Westenra. Dracula makes Mina drink his blood from his breast in a forced act of reverse fellatio. Mina's bloody nightgown symbolizes the patriarchy's loathing and fear of menstruation. And when all the men surround Arthur as he pounds a big hard-pointed stake into the breast of Lucy in her coffin, it's really an act of group sex. Fascinating. That's all we have time for today on What Does Dracula Mean? Where everyone has a theory and they're all winners. You could get lost among all the colonial, anti-colonial, Freudian, Jungian, postmodern, Marxist, socialist, and queer readings of Dracula, and every single one of them is a fun way to view the book. But there's a lot on the surface of Dracula that gets ignored, and that's the stuff whose implications make me uncomfortable. And I think that's what still accounts for the book's power today. There are interpretations of Dracula that say the book is about the superstitions of the old world and Eastern Europe encountering the science and reading found in Western Europe and contemporary urban Great Britain. But there's a problem with that thinking. Dracula is not a superstition. He's real. And if he's real... He's very clearly God. Rinfield, the madman in the book, the John the Baptist to count Dracula's Jesus, believes that Dracula is not just a god, but the god, introducing the uneasy idea that monsters, real monsters, immortal monsters, monsters who drink blood and live forever are not just old wives' tales told by superstitious peasants, but they're really out there, and when we encounter them, some of us are going to worship them. Rinfield declares, the master is at hand. And note that Stoker wrote master with a capital M, just like in the Bible. As Renfield preaches, he outlines Dracula's promise to him. All these lives I will give you, I, and many more and greater through countless ages if you will fall down and worship me. So, disturbing implication number one, Dracula is God. The other plane on the surface fact of Dracula that many people ignore, every single vampire in the book besides Dracula himself is a woman. He has three brides, he turns Lucy Restoran into a vampire who must be killed, and he turns Mina into a half-vampire. There are some interpretations of the book that say it's an attack on the new woman as she appeared in the late 19th century. That Lucy Westenra, dead and wandering around a cemetery, mouth smeared with gore and baby fat, carrying a half-eaten baby drumstick in her hand, is a reflection of Eliza Lynn Linton's image of the butchering feminist woman, hands red with blood. And like the Lamia, these vampiric women of Dracula blur the lines between man and woman. They are monstrous, polluted, blood-hungry. Another hurtful metaphor directed at the new woman. Another attempt to scare proper folks about these not-quite-women who wanted so many exhausting things like bicycle riding and cigarette smoking and lawn tennis and voting. As one Victorian doctor famously said, Love of home, children, and domestic duties are the only passions women feel.
So maybe Lucy and the brides resonated with Victorian women because under all that pressure, it might have been nice for them to see a woman eat a baby instead of spend all day feeding it. Maybe. But Bram Stoker spent his life surrounded by strong women. His mother was one of the most important people to him, and she told him stories about growing up with the plague that he says had a huge impact on his writing, especially of Dracula. And she spent her life vocally advocating for women to get the vote. Some of Stoker's best friends were the actresses Ellen Terry and Helen Barry, strong, professional women who managed enormously successful international careers. Stoker also says he married his wife because she was so intelligent and eager for knowledge. And in Mina Harker, Stoker gives horror literature its first new woman. Mina is a devoted wife and schoolmistress to her really boring husband, Jonathan Harker. She memorizes train and boat schedules so she can be sort of his living Google calendar as he goes around traveling for his work. She learns shorthand to help him with his job, but she is no shy and fainting flower because everything that should make Mina weak, everything that should stop her, she turns into a weapon against Dracula. When her husband is attacked and found lost and alone in a foreign country, Mina goes and brings him back home. Dracula kills her friend Lucy, and instead of crushing Mina's spirit, it pisses her off and makes her vow revenge. Then, Dracula attacks her and turns her into a half-vampire, but Mina even turns that into a weapon. When Dracula attacked Lucy, she remembers his attacks as half-remembered, foggy, hazy dreams, but Mina forces herself to relate every traumatic detail of all three attacks to the men to give them knowledge about what exactly Dracula does so maybe in that they can find his weakness and destroy him. When Dracula uses his blood in Mina's veins to control her mind and see through her eyes, she boomerangs that back around on him, misleading him as to where the vampire hunters are so they can get the drop on him, and then she turns the mind control back around on him and uses it to track his movements. She uses her shorthand to make a record of what Dracula is doing. She scans the newspapers and makes a research file on his activities. When he goes on the run, she uses her knowledge of boat and train schedules to get to Transylvania ahead of Dracula, and when the brides try to get her to join them, she resists long enough for the hunters to track them down and kill them. She is horribly scarred by a communion wafer pressed to her forehead. She is raped and or attacked three times by Dracula, but Mina Harker never gives up. Ted Bundy, Ed Kemper, the son of Sam, we remember the names of killers, but never of their victims, and it's the same with Dracula. His name is famous, even though he only appears on 62 pages of a 390-page book. But remember Mina, who turns every weakness into a weapon, and whatever they do to crush her spirit only makes her stronger. Characters will always live longer than theories. Art will always outlast academia. Dracula isn't a Freudian text or a post-colonial polemic. It's the story of Mina who won't stop fighting until the end. And you can find her DNA today in Halloween's Laurie Strode and Aliens Ellen Ripley and in Silence of the Lambs Clarice Starling because Mina Harker is horror fiction's very first final girl. Brady Hendricks, and this has been another thinly veiled attempt to get you to buy my new novel, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Super Scary Haunted Home School is written, narrated, and produced by me, Grady Hendricks. See you all in a week.